You can also talk about how big I'm getting. Welcome to another episode of Impactpreneurs. I'm your host, Davrick Lyles, along with Sean Alexander. And we are back again, full effect. And I just noticed, Sean, I, did you have that the last episode? No, you had I a tattoo. no, I just did this uh, last Wait. week. Okay, but okay, but the last episode you had that because I, I saw it on your arm. And did I have the last episode? I think so. Oh, yeah, you're right. And then I want to ask you, what is that about? So this is, it's actually an angel wing. Um, and it wraps around my whole forearm. A little bit of open right here on the front end, but it wraps around my whole arm. It's an angel wing. And uh, basically, it's a representation of my deceased brother because I, I believe that since he passed, that's, he's been my guardian angel. And um, I wear his wings now. Um, and it doesn't stop here. This, this coming Friday, we're going to finish this up. I'm going to put his name going down my forearm here. And then at the top here... We're going to do a lion mask with my brother's face and the lion mask. Is it going to be color? What? what? The whole thing? Or is it going to be black and it's white? It's all black and white. What about the mask? Everything? Uh, the eyes will not be, but the mask will all be black and white. Everything's black and white. And you just got another one done on your back. Your whole back. Yeah, my whole back. And I'm going to be honest with you. I did the tattoo here. It hurt so bad. I, maybe I'm a weenie, but I had all of my shoulder, my chest, and I had four sessions. And I have to go back and finish it. Right. And I don't want to go back. I'm I'm only getting started, dude. I'm planning on probably being blasted from from just below neck because I don't want anything to show here, but from from my neckline all the way down. So and, what, and a whole and a whole leg. What are those uh, the the Japanese people that get at the tattoos? Their whole body. What is that called? Is do you do you know George? What have no clue oh what gosh. that would be. I, I forgot what it is. I know what you're you talking about. You know what I'm about. talking about, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, my artist has one of those. He has a painting. I mean, they're, they're head to toe. Yeah. I forgot what it's called. So you're going to do that other than your, your wrists? You're gonna, you're, so you, you can wear a suit and I nobody will know your tattoo. I'm not going to do my hand. I'm not going to do my neck or my face, obviously, but everything else will be. Wow. Um, yeah. So after we finish this arm, we're going to finish this arm. Doesn't that hurt? Side. <laughs> Bro, when you're an addict, the pain is pain. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, I gotta get some numbing cream. Like I'm my, to go my, my back's it. not even done because what oh. we're gonna do is we're gonna we're gonna connect the shoulders, and we're gonna create like a background scene for the dragon cross on my back, and then have that scene connect into my shoulders. So what? And what into my chest? Was there any area that was more painful than others? Uh, areas that are directly on the bone is what just hurts overall. Like my wrist, because it's all just tendons and veins, that shit hurts. When it's directly on a bone, that hurts I too. heard on the inside of your arm. I've heard that too. I don't know yet. I've heard inside your arm, bicep, tricep area so, hurts like your mother. So when I was doing jiu-jitsu with Gracie Baja, that was the team I was with. Uh, once you get your black belt, you know, it takes 10 years, 8 years to get your black belt, 12, whatever. All the jiu-jitsu guys would get their tattoo of the logo. On the inside, they said it was the most painful experience. I've heard it's pretty bad. But I've also heard certain areas on your leg is just... Your shin. Awful. The shin's got to be bad. Yeah, and also the side of your oh. leg is really bad, too. See, I am I need to finish this. I'm going to get a whole jar of numbing cream. I'm not done, bro. I just The thing is, like, I held out for so long because of 
like bodybuilding and competing and whatnot that it created this uncertainty of whether I wanted or not. Because when I was coming up bodybuilding, like being tatted at that time, um, you could have been docked. It covers striations and vascularity, um, graininess. Now I think it's a little bit more okay. But at that time, and I already did my, and I already did my purpose in the competing side. Like I like to bodybuild for myself on a personal level. Right. Um, and I had been holding out on getting tatted since I was like 16, man, like I wanted to get fully started at 18, but then, I, you know, when I was still using drugs, but then like at 22, well, 21, I started working out at 22 and I started getting into bodybuilding and whatnot. I was like, shit, I can't get tatted because it might, it might hurt me in, co- in the competition field. And then obviously as of like a few years ago, I was like, all right, fuck it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to compete and I want to get these tattoos because everything that I put on my body ta- tattoo wise is going to be a representation of me, my life. Uh, certain deceased uh, uh, close loved ones. Um, just basically, my life story will be on this. That's awesome. Yeah. So I'll be. I'm going to be the canvas. Wow. Of my life story. Sean's going to show up here every 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 month with another one. And speaking of life stories, let's hear your story. Let's hear my story. Uh, where Dev? <coughs> where I don't even know a lot of this. I don't know. I only know very small pieces of, of this. You grew up in Seattle. We've known that. You mentioned that before. But where where does where does where does the life of Daverick start when he was say call it four, five, six years old? Oh wow. Okay, here we go. Um, I kind of had a, a well. I think everybody has an interesting life, but I I would say it was different. You know. Um, so this is this is gonna be weird. Um, I don't have a good relationship with my real mom even though she's around. Um, but when my mom, <clears throat> I was born in an, an era when having a biracial child or a, a, a black kid, baby, if you will, uh, in a white neighborhood was, was frowned upon. Was it worse when you were half and half? Being yeah, half and half? B- because I didn't fit in with either culture. I was, oh. I was, I was scrutinized by blacks and I was scrutinized by whites. Oh, so I was that, that dude that was the fastest guy in the schoolyard. Right. And that's hence why your Instagram is black and white. Best of both. Yep. Because I was, I was racially crucified, Tar- targeted, targeted yeah. for, for both, from both sides. I wasn't black enough and so, I wasn't so, white enough. So blacks hated you for being half black. Whites hated you for being half white. Yep. Isn't that some ironic well, shit? And, and, and I don't know that blacks hated me as much as I didn't fit in. Okay. Right. But back then there was there was some racial prejudice, right, towards blacks, but not not through I don't want I got to watch this this topic, but um not systemically, but but through people, right? Does that make sense? Yes. <clears throat> and so the neighborhood that that well let me give you some backstory. My mom grew up grew up with a silver spoon in her mouth. My grandfather is very famous. He's a middleweight champion of the world. He's in the Hall of Fame, Freddie Steele. S T E E L E. Boxing. Yep, he, and he's called the Tacoma Assassin. So he's a middleweight I'm, I'm champion. Look it up while you're doing that. <laughs> I believe he's a middleweight champion from 34 to 36, um, and um, he's called the Tacoma Assassin. Um, and he was in movies. He was in a lot of movies in Hollywood. Gentleman Jim McCormick, GI Joe, um, Freddie Steele, S T E E L E. And uh, he's on the white side of my family. So my mom grew up in Hollywood. Which back then was like Beverly Hills, so she, you know they went to Christmas dinner at uh, the Crosby's house. Um, you know, I mean they 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 were around all the affluent people. So somewhere down the road, um, 
my grandfather, my grandmother got divorced. Uh, they moved out to Seattle. And so I think there was a lot of bitterness because my, my mom grew up with her dad with a silver spoon and then kind of went the other way. Um, they all moved out here and then they got divorced. So let me cut you off for a second because <clears throat> we're going to get away from this t topic. So Freddie Steele, born December 18, 1912 uh, to August 22nd, 1984. He was a boxer and film actor born Frederick Earl Burgett yep. in Seattle, Washington. He was recognized as the National Boxing Association middleweight champion of the world between 1936 and 1938. Steele was nicknamed the Tacoma Assassin and was trained by Jack Connor, Johnny Babnick, and Ray Arcel while in New York. His managers included George McAllister, Dave Miller, Eddie Miller, and Pete Riley. He appeared as an actor in a number of Hollywood films in the 1940s, including Preston Sturges' Hail the Conquering Hero. That's quite an impressive Look at his fight resume. record. He, he had 100, so he's, 117 fights. So he's more, bro. So he's a height 5'10", reach 72 inches. Uh, let's go down here. Okay, here we go. Um, boxing record, total fights, 142 fights. Out of those 142 fights, 125 wins. Out of those 125 wins, 60 of them are wins by KOs. Five losses, one draw, one no contest. That's one hell of a record, man. Five <laughs> losses in 142 fights. Yeah, and Dude, well, they, they, because, I can't believe you don't wear this on your shoulders. Well, they they fight, they fight, they were fighting every month back then, and they only had like four ounce gloves. They were get hurt. They were using the gloves they use in, in MMA, May. right? So I mean, there were four six ounce gloves, and he he was fighting every month. Hey guys, if you ever if you guys decide to look this up, this is very impressive. Make sure you go look up. Um, what was it? The Tacoma Assassin, Freddie Steele, S-T-E-E-L-E, -E -E -E, Freddie Steele, the Tacoma Assassin, middleweight boxing champion. Yeah. Has one hell of a, of, a, of a resume. And all this information is right here. So if you guys decide to look it up, I, I highly recommend it. Because just me glancing through it is pretty damn impressive. And now I'm kind of annoyed that Daverick doesn't wear this on his, <laughs> on his shoulders. I'll probably get it. <laughs> now I'm going to make you. Go ahead. I'll get a tattoo. Uh, so, so you were saying. So then, so actually... I'll, I'll skip forward and go back. So I boxed from the age of 18 to 16. I was a boxer. That's how I learned my fighting skills initially. And I was fast. So I'll get to that in a minute. But anyways. Um, Is that the black belt? <laughs> I don't know. But I had to learn to run fast like Forrest Gump after school. So, oh, yeah. you know, and find my way out of stuff. So, um, but I, uh, yeah. So, so, so here's my mom, grandmother. They got divorced. My grandmother, grandfather, um, who I didn't have a close relationship with my grandfather. Um, but they ended up here. My mom liked black men. Okay. So this is a no-no. So your mom's white. Your mom's dad's white. Black. Dad's black. And so she had a thing for black men. And she was, uh, I think, when she was young, she got pulled over in this town in Seattle and with, a, with two black guys. And here's a blonde, blue-eyed white girl. Now, back then, that was bad news. And then she's like, you, you can't take me to jail. You know who my father is, blah, blah, blah. Well, he found out. And so he, he knew that she had this. And this is all speculation, but I put two and two together over the years. He knew that, <clears throat> that uh, she had this attraction to black men. There was kind of like a disownership of the daughter-dad situation. Okay. And my grandmother, and you got to understand, the time, times and era that they grew up. Yeah. They didn't know any better, right? And so when my uncle was in Hollywood, my old, oldest uncle who's no longer around, he, he told me a story. He said he remembers his dad, my grandfather, brought him down to the city in L.A., and he was getting his shoes shined. 
my uncle had never seen a black guy. And he said, Never. Like, never. Wow. And he was a little kid. He said, Dad, what's that? Oh, okay. But this is how old it was. I mean, you're talking a long this time ago, back. right? So, so you know, the, the, they grew up with that. And, and, and so my grandmother, the same thing. So I think what happened was, anyways, I was born. And <laughs> I ended up living with my godparents okay. who were white, but they were, you know, traditional Catholics. There were seven older daughters, a son. So I grew up with eight kids. And no racial bias? No, and they were all white, but they, you know, I think they had a different, you know, um, perspective. perspective. And my godmother had a daycare. Oh. And then my my godfather would go out and he, he worked for the oil company, drove the truck, and, you know, he was, a, he was the blue collar worker. But what happened was, and I don't know why to this day, um, I was basically left at my godparents' house Okay. from the time I was a little kid, barely walking. I started walking at seven months. I had wheels at seven months and a football in one hand and boxing gloves in the other, right? That was my deal. And so uh, I'd see my mom maybe once a week, once a month, once every two months, but I didn't know why I was at my godparents' house. Okay, so who... So who are your godparents in the relation of your parents? Are they is it like your mom's best friend? This is, this is the story. Friend? This is where it gets wild. So the house is the way to put the oil company would come out once a month and put oil for, for your gas furnaces, sure. right? So the oil guy, which was my godfather, every time I come over, you know, it was like excitement day for me, right? Little kid, little toddler. And I was like, oh, and he had a relationship with my, with a customer back then. People and vendors that you did business with, every you know, the milkman you knew, right. Tom, you know, Jim, the oil yeah. guy, that was my godfather. The local milk store. Yeah. So, yeah. so what happened is, is he mentioned that his wife runs a daycare. So my mom decides that oh, I can have him there during the day. So the story I heard is that my grandmother and my mom like to party. And let's be real. I'm just going all the way it is. Okay. So I stayed there and. I ended up living there for seven and a half years. Wow. Now, I saw my mom. I'd see her on weekends. I'd, I'd see her maybe once a month, once every two months. And she never really paid my godmother the full amount that she was supposed to pay. So I lived there. I was like one of their kids. And she and your mom is doing what at this time while she's dropping you off? She had me. She's 27 years old. I don't think she was ready to be a mom. Right. My dad has a real dark background. I'll get to that in a second. But at the end of the day, my godparents wanted to adopt me, and she didn't want to let him adopt me. But yeah, she wouldn't be around either. Correct. So my, my grandmother lived on a, a country club golf course, predominantly white, right? Even in Seattle, this point has, Seattle has like 3% black in Seattle. There's not a lot of black people in Seattle. So to this, back then, it's like, what? Who's this? What is that? <laughs> You know, is, is he Greek, Italian, <laughs> you know, French. So I had, a, yeah. So, so I'd see my mom and, and then one day my mom shows it. Now keep in mind, I'm doing Christmases there. I'm going on vacation with them. I have seven older sisters, older brother. And back then I didn't even know what the difference was. Kids don't see color. Right. Right. Until I started getting older and they started having racial on both sides. Right. right. So this is the story. <clears throat> Seven and a half, and I've saw I've seen my mom every month, every now, every, once in a while. She shows up at the door with this guy. Now, my my real father died when I was like two and a half or three years old. Oh, so you never met him? I think I met him once. I can vaguely remember. My 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 dad. If you ever watched that movie with Denzel Washington, the original gangster, that gangster yeah. movie, that was my father. He ran. Oh, that's right. You've told me. <clears throat> okay, that's right. He ran Seattle, Sacramento. 
uh, pimps and gangsters, pimps, and, and drug uh, women, heroin. He was well known, uh, and he had bars. He had is that story on him too? I don't think he's in there, but I got legal documents when when he was going to prison. This is how old it was. They were calling, they were describing him as a Negro male because back then they described blacks as Negroes. Oh, okay. So he was well known. Like it, the the if they're still alive, he was known for what he was doing. <clears throat> yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. So. He dies, so I don't really have a relationship with him. And I don't find out about his history until I'm older, like much older. Like 20s? 30s, 40s. Like, oh, oh that was your dad? Oh. that And like everybody in Seattle, the black community, oh, I knew him. He ran the town. So my mom, <clears throat> he found Whoa. her. In the, he found her. In the, this is how he found my, my mom. Uh, they have a thing called the Torchlight Parade <clears throat> in Seattle. She was a newspaper. So my dad, Caesar. And calls the house, you know, back then you call the operator, I need the phone number for this house. So he calls several times and my grandmother would hang up on him. Finally got to my mom. And he asked her out on a date. He kept asking her out. She said, no, he was persistent. Well, he finally got together with her. She asked, what do you do? He goes, I own businesses. He didn't tell her what she did. Right. When she found out, she, she just didn't want anything to do with him. Long story short, <clears throat> my mom shows up at my godparents' house. And she said, oh, this is your new stepdad. Oh, okay. I'm like, who's this dude? So I went from, you know, excuse no me from the table, manners, dad, mom, kids, everybody was, you know, Catholic family, traditional Catholic family, excuse me from the table, go to Sunday church to, uh, hey, no values at all, no core values. And we're going, now I'm moving in with my mom and this guy. Wow. So total culture shock. Total culture shock. New school, what, everything. Did the did your godparents <clears throat> fight your mom? Like uh, they no? wanted, yeah. Well, they wanted to adopt me, but my mom didn't want to give me up for adoption. But did they try to fight them? Like, be like, uh, no, we've been taking care of and raising to a point, Daverick, yeah. for X amount of years. You've been absent, and all of a sudden, you just want to be a parent. Yeah, to a point. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, I'm around a predominantly white kids, white neighborhoods. No blacks. When you're with your godparents, godparents, God. mom, that that area of Seattle to this day is not. There's no minorities. There is, but not like there was. So I moved to this area, which is called Bellevue, Washington, which is still predominantly white. Um, and they moved this condo. And right away, me and my mom, she, the way she communicates is very negative and yelling. Hostile. And I went from this loving family, loving family very strict, to a hostile environment. That sucks. And then I had an identity crisis because when I went and, and, and lived with them, I went from kindergarten to first grade and I'm at school and I'm like, why are the, the white kids mean to me and the black kids don't want to hang around me? Uh, oh, so you went to a school that was mixed races. Well, there's very few blacks, Okay, but it was all white kids. But those kids. few blacks didn't like you. They didn't want nothing to do with me. Because you were half They white. didn't know what I was. Because there was there was no Hispanics, there was no Greeks, there was no Italians. It was black, black and white. white. And here's this guy, and they never saw biracial people. And I had half row. I literally had a half row. It was half row. It, it was an afro, but with big curls. Right. Can we put that in caps on the screen. Half row. H A F R O. I did never that. Before. And so, so here I am, seven and a half and eight. I start boxing, right, Bellevue Boys Club, and I start boxing, and I'm running track, and I'm the fastest kid on the team, and blah blah blah. 
And then I started getting into it, but I could never like really bond with kids. And I got to the point where these kids threw rocks at me. They literally stoned me at school with rocks. Hit me in the head, gave me a concussion. And then one day I'm at school and this kid pushed me too far. Right? And and I I, I knew, you fought back. I fought back and knocked him down. And I went to the principal's office, got spanked, got two days suspended. I got suspended in first grade. That's awesome. I know, great, right? So it went on. Here's here's where it gets really bizarre. We moved 12 times in 12 years. I went to a different school every, every year. year. Like, <clears throat> yeah, you were being moved from schools or or you and your parents were actually moving? All they the were time. moving. So they were bouncing. Right. Why were they bouncing? I don't know. They kept moving to different houses. But you don't know why. I don't know to this day. Though, let me, let me get to where I'm at. So... Keep in mind, up until I'm 14 and a half. Now, I, I, the only thing I had that was going for me was I was really good at boxing, and I was extremely high-level football player. That was it. That was it. Running back? Running back and free safety. That was it. Running back, running back. To the point where I was getting noticed, and I, was in, I started playing when I was eight years old. I, I mean, I was the guy. I loved it. I walked around with a football everywhere. Like Forrest Gump would walk around with sure. something. You know, just, you know, that's all I cared about. So up until I was 14 and a half, it was pretty much, or 14, it was pretty much white kids. Then I go to the school in Burien called Highline High School. Mm-hmm. Now there's some minorities. Now I notice the minority girls like me because the white oh. girls didn't like me. I'm like, what's this about? And I still didn't really know that I was mixed because my mom never talked about my dad. And she never told you that you were half white, half black? She never said anything. That's I, so weird. I just, yeah. But did you ever ask her like, hey, mom... The white kids at school hate me, and the black kids don't. Well, want nobody because nobody ever called me the N word because nobody knew what I was. Sure, but still, I thought I was maybe Italian, Greek. But, did you, ever, but you never asked your mom like, why is it? Why? How come the white kids don't like me? Why do the black dudes not like me? Like, what am I doing? Me and my mom have the weirdest relationship. We don't even talk now. Correct, but even then, no, it was it was weird. Okay, I don't know. I, I had low self image, low self esteem. Okay, so here comes you ready for this? Here comes break dancing. <laughs> Right, we're talking like you know, yeah. Run DMC, Kumo D. We're talking you know, Curtis Blow, uh, Sugar Hill Gang. Right <clears throat> now, I'm like, okay, I'm good at this. Then my stepdad and my mom get divorced. Okay. This is where it went from bad to worse. <clears throat> then I started moving in, staying in like renting rooms, doing things like because my mom, I don't know, she was working these jobs. I was always by myself at night. And I would gravitate towards my new family, which were the kids on the street. So then I ended up living in White Center, which is not the, it's not white at all back then. White Center in Seattle is the opposite of White Center. Why is it called White Center? That's the area. Got it. Uh, maybe at one point in time, it was all white, but way back like when. Like forever but, ago. <clears throat> right. And they got a place called Black Diamond in Seattle that there's no blacks. <laughs> it's like whatever. Okay. So I start hanging around these kids, hip hop, you know, I'm getting into, I didn't really get in a lot of trouble, but I was out in the streets. Right. So having a hard time in school and I've been to, to two high schools now on my second high school, ninth grade Highline, Evergreen High School, 10th. Here we go. So one day my mom gets mad at me as usual. And she never believed anything I said. And I was a good kid. I wasn't a bad, bad kid. I just, school and me just didn't drive. All I cared about was football. Sure. She takes a swing at me. Oh. And I block it. I just block it with my forearm. So she calls the cops. She says, my son hit me. Oh. So now I got, now I got King County Sheriff's Office looking for me. Look, oh, so you didn't go home. I didn't go home. 
And the neighbor kids tried to lock me in the house, and I, I ran, outran him. And he, he, broke his, he broke his leg trying to catch me. I jumped a fence and all right. weird stuff. So I show up at football practice. Oh, bro. Okay. And my, my, my football coach says, Dad, come here. He says, hey, what's going on with you and your mom? I had the sheriff looking for you. I was like, what? He goes, yeah. He goes, I'm staying with my buddy Bobby Garza. I don't even know if he's alive anymore, Bobby Garza. Because we're in the hood. It's Latinos and blacks. Right. And, and Vietnamese and Cambodians and Samoans. That's right. it. And I said, I said, well, I was staying at Bobby's house because this is what happened. He goes, well, yeah, the police were here. They said you hit your mom. I go, no. I said, coach, I, this is what happened. I ended up calling my godparents, 15 and a half. And I said, I need to come live with you. So I go all the way back up north, try to live there. But keep in mind, growing up with my mom for the last seven years, it was latchkey kid. You know, here's the key. I'm working all night. Do what you got to do. To a strict house. So I moved up to go to the school called Ingemore High School in 10th grade. Okay. <clears throat> and I, uh, I was told I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't, you can't be on the phone. Gotta, I mean, it was, it was rough. Now, my godparents are good people, but they had different rules. And you got to abide by the rules. Yeah. And I had a hard time. And so I ended up going to the point where I was like, okay, I got to go live with my grandma and uncle. Okay. So 11th and 12th, I lived there until I graduated high school. 30 days after I graduated high school, I was in the Army. Oh. You were like, I'm out. I'm out. I just start life over. <clears throat> my dream was to go play football. I couldn't keep my grades up. I wanted to play at Michigan. I had some, some talks at Michigan University. I couldn't play there uh, because of grades. Because I went from an inner city school where you got C's to show up to a school where you actually had to have study habs. I didn't have any. I think I graduated with 1.4 GPA. Awesome. Just good enough to graduate. And then I'm off in the Army. 30 days after I graduated. Gone. Infantry school. Fort Benning, Georgia. <clears throat> and from there, I, I got into some special units and did some special things. And I realized very quickly that this wasn't the life I wanted. Right? And I thought, you know what? I'm either going to be dead or I'm going to have to transfer out, and they're not going to let me transfer out. How long were you in for? <clears throat> on paper, short time. Uh, well, on paper, seven years. Physically, short time. But I was on call. Got it. So now I'm going to expose the, the truth. Because of what I did and everything was off, off paper, the only way for me to get out of the Army was to leave on my own accord without telling them. When you're... When you leave the military in your past 45 days, you're dropped from the rolls. You're no longer AWOL. I was in, my garrison was in Europe. My duty stations were in Central South America. Okay. Okay, now this isn't a time when cocaine was on the rise. The cartel stuff. Right. So Ooh, as soon as you said cocaine in South America, I'm like, oh shit. And so my whole, to this day, I can't find anybody from my unit on social media. I don't know if they're alive or what. They probably had to go low key. Probably if they're still alive, but we, we were, we were very expendable. Um, then I said, okay, let me, let me, I came back. My, I had a conversation with my first sergeant, did two tours in Nam. He said, Lyles, you need to get out. You're not going to make the next tour. I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, you, I'm surprised you're still alive. I mean, we had people dropping like flies and when they drop, the U S didn't know anything about it. So why would your sergeant say, Derek, you need to go? I had an altercation with a squad leader, so they sent me down to a psych ward in Frankfurt, Germany, because we pulled knives on each other. 
we were like everybody was unstable. The shit we went through and saw stuff I I wish upon nobody to see. And then he says, "You." I went and got evaluated. He said we're going to let him out on a medical. I come back. My my captain says, "No, you're going back to the field." I go, "No, I got a medical discharge from the colonel at Rheinstein Air Force Base." He said, "Too bad you're going because that paper ain't here by tomorrow. You're you're on a C-130 and you're out of here." So I went to my first sergeant and said, "I said, top, we call him tops. Help me out here. What am I supposed to do?" He says, "He said, Sergeant Lyles, you need to get your paperwork in order. You need to figure out how to get yourself out of this country and back to the U.S." Why is why is that sergeant wanting and helping you to get out? Because I covered his ass one time, uh, and at bar in Germany when he was drunk, uh, and I took the rap for him because he was trying to pick up on this soldier's girlfriend, and the guy hit him, and they got into a fight, and I stepped in. And I went, I went to jail instead of him. Oh. So he owed me. And so, um, so he just naturally looked out for you. Yeah, he was like, a good. He was the biggest man. Guy was six five two. I mean, just a big, big, dark as your shirt, corn fed brother from Georgia, right? So <laughs> I, I'm like, okay. So I go to I, I don't know if I get in trouble. Let's pass the statute of limitations. I go to the battalion. I get leave paperwork. I forge it, sign it. My buddy's name's Colonel. So-and-so oh. from here, from uh. my buddy's name. <laughs> and I'm like, I got, I got, now listen to this. When you have a military ID, you don't need passports. Right. Okay. But I'm like, how am I going to get back to the States? I had to forge all these leave papers. And then I said, okay, I got 800 bucks to my name. I got to buy a ticket from West Germany all the way to the U.S. It was 700 something dollars. Okay. Left me with 20 bucks to my back name. Back then, that's a lot, yeah. And I got to disappear for 45 days. Now, I'm the master of disappearing because that's what we did. Right. We were like. Yeah, because they're going to come after we're you. We're like night stalkers, right? right? Our team. Like, you, you don't know it's there. We're there. Right. Uh, so I get back to the States. Uh, I, get out, I go to Germany. So here's what happens. I got to get out of my, my, my barracks without a bunch of bags. So my roommate says, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to leave all my gear. All I'm going to take is some clothes like I'm going on leave. So I didn't take any military stuff, my uniform, my medals, everything. I left. I, I, dropped, I dropped the duffel bag out the back window of the barracks and climb, rappel down the back, go to the front gate. And I'm leaving, and I walk by these two soldiers, and they're looking at me. And they kind of looked at me like they knew something was up. I say, hey, what's up, guys? I say, hey, where are you going? I said, I'm just going to my girlfriend's house. They're like, okay. Because I had this girlfriend in Germany I was seeing. I take this cab to the, the train station go to the airport i get there they're like there's no flights leave until the next day oh. and this is sunday so i knew i had first formation on monday right so now i'm scared and i'm thinking okay what am i going to do well the next day comes i get on a plane right pay for the ticket get on the plane and it's flying into london heathrow i think that's it right and then it goes to san francisco new york and san francisco so in San Francisco, I stand on the plane, and then it goes into uh, or New York, and then it goes into San Francisco. Well, this is where you, you do the immigration shit. And I'm all scared. I'm like, okay, be cool. So I came in. The guy's like, what's the purpose of your trip? I said, I'm on leave. He says, let me see your leave paperwork. And I show oh, it to him. He's man. looking at it. He's looking at me. And he goes, what do you got in your bag? I said, I said, what are you bringing over? I said, just civilian clothes. He said, where's your military stuff? He said, back at, you know, where's your unit? I said, well, my garrison's in West Germany. He said, okay. He says, he stamps, he goes, go ahead. Now I got to call my buddy. Nobody knows I'm in the States. 
and I have to hide for 45 days before I turn myself in. Okay. Okay. Now keep, keep this in mind. This is where it gets tricky. I'm sleeping in friends' cars, closets, in their houses, whatever. Street, you know, wherever I can sleep, the woods. I mean, I'm like Rambo type. Yeah, wherever you can find. Like, I'm a Rambo type guy. I just had my rucksack, and I'm like in the woods, right? I show up my godparents' house, say, hey, listen, I, this is what happened. They call Fort, Fort Lewis, chaplain on the phone. Fort Lewis's first special forces out of Tacoma, right, in, in Tacoma, Washington. And they go, okay, well, since you called us, why don't you, you know, turn yourself in on this date? So I go down there. They handcuff me. I got to get on a plane and fly from SeaTac Airport to San Francisco, handcuffed with two uh, special ops soldiers in civilian clothes, Delta Force guys. And I have my jacket over my handcuffs. Yeah, so that people don't see the cuffs. Right. So I land at Monterey Air- Airport uh, from San Francisco. I fly to San Francisco, take this puddle jumper from, uh, into Monterey to Fort Ord. And I'm walking in there with handcuffs. I go, I go through the gate. They hand me off to the MPs. Shit. <laughs> True story. That's all I got to say is shit. They put me in this compound, and they give me military uniforms with no ID on them, no dog tags, and they say, this is going to be your unit until we out-process you to figure out what we're going to do. So I'm there for three weeks, and my colonel wants to bring me back and set an example of me, back in, uh, or my captain back in uh, Europe. Oh. And the colonel at Fort Ord is like, no, he's getting out. They're like, the only way he's getting out is if he gives up all his benefits and his rank. He can come back, but he gets no veteran benefits. And they go, what do you want to do? I said, I'll take it. That's my story. That was the military. And then when I got out, I had to find myself and, and I had a hard time finding what I'm going to do. And I sat down one day in front of a whiteboard in my apartment. There was a shit apartment. And I said, how am I going to make money? Because I can either go hustle drugs, which I knew how to do, which I fought for, and I'm not going to do, or I can do it the legitimate way. I had these stupid jobs. And I sat there. I said, I got to be a middleman in corporate America. I don't want to go to school, and I don't have the money to start a business. So after trial and error, all these jobs, I sat in one day. I said, wait a minute. I want to get in the technology space. This is why I'm going to uh, in in this conversation here. I'll, I'll, I'll round it off here. And I said, how do I get in the tech space? Because I don't want to learn how to do this computer crap. This is, yeah. Keep in mind, this is before email. Right. We were faxing resumes, okay? And the internet just started, and it was Sprynet, and it was 14K modem, and you go to lunch, and the website Spynet, was- Sprynet, like from Terminator. Sprynet, yeah. So uh, I said, wait a minute. I can be a technical recruiter. I can find people. I'm good at hunting men. Right, this is what I did for a living. So I can find these these software guys or hardware guys, and then the client needs them. So I went in with a suit and tie, and I was going door to door with a resume, trying to get a job. This place hired me called Data Partners, and I was there, and I figured it out. And after 18 months, I saw Jerry Maguire, and I said, "Fuck this! I'm going to start my own agency." And that's where it took off. And now here I am today, 25 years later, and I'm like making it happen. So that's kind of my story, man. That's a good story. That's actually a very intriguing story. Um, a lot of questions I want to ask, but I think I'll save them for off off the air. Um, but it's very intriguing. It it puts in a perspective like where you came from. You know, the thing that I like about it is actually your story kind of gives a little bit of the American dream that people talk about because you came from a rough background, a racial history, obviously. Um, 
and it's rare that you hear a story where where someone is hated by both races, um, and you were both. Usually, you know, when you hear a story like that, one side does want the other person and says, like, hey, no, you're on our side. Well, yeah, it was. Uh, um, and in your case, you're just hated by both. Yeah, I think I was excluded more by blacks for, for being mixed, but then hated by whites for having being part black. So, I mean, I had people write on my apartment. Is it more, do you think, your mom was white, right? You said? Yeah. Is it more, do you think that, like, the, the white side, white side, I don't like just talking like that. Do you, the people, do you feel like maybe people just didn't like the fact that your mom as a white woman was, had a relationship with a black man versus yeah. the fact that you were, you were biracial, but more so like this dude's parent slept with a black person. I, I think it's more like black women, even to this day, sometimes have a hard time with, with black men being with white women more than anything. Yeah, for sure. They feel sold out or, or, or put to the side, right? Like as a lesser person and they're not. Women in general, I mean, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, they're all equal. They're all beautiful in their own way. But I think the women had a hard time. But I had, I had, I tell you something, when I was 15 or 16, no, I was thinking, uh, uh, no, I was younger. I was, I was 13 or 12. I had somebody write nigger on my apartment door at my mom's, and they spelled it like the country. They forgot the two Gs. They just put one G. So it was Niger, right? This kid keyed it in our door at our apartments. And then I was in, and I was in a, uh, because I hung around both sides. Because I played football, I, I, and when I was in the white center, I, I hung around a lot of black people. That's all I hung around. Sure. And then I had one time I got beat up by like six black kids because I was mixed. Oh, yeah. You couldn't catch a break. I couldn't catch a break. So Damn. The good thing was that I was like the fastest kid in both schools, so I was good at track. <laughs> and you were good at getting away. Good at getting away for a short distance. 100 yards, that was it. <laughs> Dude, that's an incredible story. That's... That's a fun story, too. Um, So when people say, they bring up issues, and I say, look, I've been on both sides. Well, you don't understand. No, I understand. I understand understand better than you. You can actually say I understand. (laughs) Not like like someone that's not black says, oh, I understand what black people go. You can actually say I understand. Or white. And then when you say it to a black person, I say, you don't understand how to be black. I say, I probably understand better than you. Because I got it from both sides, even to this day. You know, but the funny thing now is people say, "Oh, oh, I didn't know you were black. Like, they're shocked. Like, they'll guess my race, which I don't care. Cuban, Puerto Rican, Dominican. Because you're, like, tan. But my facial structure, too. And then they'll say, oh, wait, you're Greek, Italian, uh, uh, Mexican. I think think the beard part throws that off. And then I'll say, you're not half black. You don't look half black. Like, Like are you afraid now? (laughs) Like, a weird, like, for them, it's a culture shock. (laughs) Right? And I just said, hey, man, I am who I am. Accept me for who I am. If you don't, it is what it is. And I don't, and I get along with everybody. Yeah, no, you, you you do. That's that's probably where you and I have a little bit of a polar opposite personality. You you more get along with everybody. Mine, there's a very good fine line. There's no median. You either you either love me or you fucking hate me. But yours isn't yours isn't racially biased. No, though. you don't get along with them for other reasons, not the race. Right. But but you know, I've I've dealt with so many different races, and then it's like, okay, well, I take everybody at face value. Personality, the the, the um, who they are as a person. I don't really look at colors, you know? No. Because you can't. Because everybody's a mutt now. Even to this... Well, basically, because now people go do this DNA testing thing, and next thing you know, like, someone that you thought was 
just typical white American is now like Eastern European with French and some other crazy stuff. And supposedly everybody has 1% to 2% African in their bloodline to some extent. You know, or we all came from Genghis Khan, right? (laughs) So it's like, wow, I'm a crazy dude, you know? So I don't know. But, you know, to this day, I I try when I raise my kids, I try to, you know, install in them that, you know, treat everybody equal. Yeah. Even gender-based, just treat What's your, real quick, and then we'll, we'll close it off. What is your ex-wife? Filipino. Okay. I have a daughter. I have an do- older daughter from a girl that was mixed, black and white. And then my my two kids are from my ex-wife, who was Filipino. So, they're so, f- so the two kids are quarter white, quarter black, half Filipino. Yeah. Got it. And they don't look nothing like me. <laughs> they look Filipino. Yeah. So, but but if they say they're quarter black, well, no, you're not, because everybody goes by looks, right? You know, and you can't tell now. Plus, not many people really say label quarter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and what's funny is when I say when I had this this show I was talking about, you know, and somebody said you're not biracial, you're black. I was like, why is it that I have to be black and not white? And if you look at like, and I don't want to get into politics, but like people say Obama is the first black president. No, he's biracial, but they don't want to hear that. And so I think people need to take a step back and say, well, he's, he's a human, he's a man, he's, he was a president, whether you like him or not, but don't steal somebody's value because of who they are. You know, and say, oh, you know, oh, so-and-so. Don't la- no, more like don't label him what he's not. Right. Like give him what he is. Right. Like, like give it to him. Like the, the vice president is half Indian, and, which is Asian, and black. Oh, she's the first female vice president that's black. It's like, well, no, she's not the first one that ran. There was one before her. People don't know. But she's not black. She's mixed. She's biracial. But nobody wants to acknowledge that because it's a power move. So Yeah. you know that's And I always correct point. black people when they call, oh, you're black. No, I'm black and white. And they look at me like. They, like, like, bro, whose side are you on? Yeah. And it's like, it's not about a side. It's a fact. There's nothing wrong with being white, black, Asian, Hispanic, Persian, whatever, Indian. It doesn't matter. You're a human. Don't judge people by the color, but the content of their character, right? Yeah. Martin Luther what King. A, what a world we live in. So, anyway. <laughs> Man, that's a, that's a great story. I appreciate you sharing that because there's a lot of that that I didn't know. But it's definitely it's, – it's a heavy story, but it's, it's a fun and interesting story. Um, yeah, what, boy, when people see this, they're going to be calling my mom. Do you know what he said? It's like, yeah, I, like, I, I, like I, my story is like super dark. Yours is um, more heavy and super intriguing. But is it fair to say, because I know your story, you'll talk about it later. You and I shouldn't be here right now. Yeah. Dead or in prison. Would yeah. Probably be our best. I should 100% be dead. And I, 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 probably not as much as you, maybe, but well, I saw other things that could have killed me. But sure. I, I, I knew if I didn't make that move, I'd be in prison or dead. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Well, that's a great story. Um, I hope you guys enjoy a story, and maybe some of you guys will have something similar to share. Absolutely. Because uh, if you got a story, we definitely want to hear it. Uh, leave it in the comments. Share the story. Share share this uh, this episode. Subscribe. Like the channel. Yeah, and share it with everybody. Oh, turn on the notification indicator. Yeah. We forget to tell people that. We got to. Because every time we upload a new show, they're going to get a notification. Yeah. And subscribe. Yeah. All right. All right, guys. Thank you. Have a great day. See you in the next episode. Peace.